You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, A youth pastor in Wisconsin was found guilty of five felony counts last week. Five felony counts of what? I'm not going to say, but I will say that they're exactly what you think they are. A youth pastor in Texas arrested last week for online solicitation. I'm not going to say what he was soliciting for or whether the person he was soliciting that from was old enough to drink or vote or drive because you know or you guessed and guessed correctly. A youth pastor in rural Ohio was arrested last week. All this happened in just the last week for exactly what you might think he was arrested for, as was another youth pastor in Wisconsin and a youth pastor and his wife in North York, Ontario. And a youth pastor in Florida wanted to mix things up, keep us on our toes. He got arrested last week, but not for felony assault of a child or soliciting a minor or statutory rape. Nope. Youth pastor Tyler Earl Etheridge got arrested in Colorado Springs for taking part in the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. From the Christian Post, Etheridge helped remove fencing before entering the building. He posted several videos of himself on social media documenting his actions. In one, he said, I'm probably going to lose my job as a youth pastor after this. Well, we'll see. There are people out there who didn't lose their precious youth pastor gigs after doing a lot worse. And if you're wondering, listeners, why it took the FBI more than a year to arrest Etheridge, it was because they only got the tip from someone at the Bible college Etheridge was attending in Colorado Springs. They only got that tip last week. So yeah, looks like maybe the January 6th hearings are having an impact. Anyway, those were the youth pastors in the news over the last week. I don't have enough time at the top of this week's show or any week's show to include all the pastors, senior pastors, and church elders who got arrested or charged or sentenced. But for the 11 billionth time, if kids got raped by clowns as often as they get raped by preachers, it would be against the law to take your kid to the circus, and they'd run the circus out of town. There is one regular old adult pastor, 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 who made the news last week that I want to mention, the Reverend Jesse Lee Peterson. He's a proponent of what's called muscular Christianity. That's Christianity for people who think regular old Christianity is too feminine with all that turn the other cheek and love thy neighbor stuff. Muscular Christianity is the Christianity for people who think regular Christianity isn't patriarchal enough It's for people who look at the amount of misogyny and homophobia in regular Christianity and think, more, more of that, please. Reverend Peterson is a leading light, a thought leader in what's known as the online manosphere. Sounds dirty, and it is about to get dirty. Reverend Peterson, of course, is a homophobe because, yeah, of course he's a homophobe. And as the Daily Beast reported last week, This rabidly homophobic pastor of a rabidly homophobic church involved in leading a rabidly homophobic movement. Can you guess? You got it. His homophobia was, as it always is, an effort to externalize an internal conflict. To say someone is externalizing an internal conflict is a polite way of saying someone is sucking all the dick. 
Numerous men, adult men, members of his church have come forward to say that Reverend Peterson was having sex with them. The Daily Beast reports that in one case, the affair went on for 10 years. There were a couple of tells along the way, a couple of warning signs, in addition to just being a homophobe. Reverend Peterson was an opponent of, yeah, gay marriage, abortion, comprehensive sex education, all that. But Reverend Peterson also opposed women having orgasms. Probably not a fan of women having the vote either, but he believed that women having orgasms, that that was dangerous and that women should not have orgasms. The Daily Beast, again, reports Peterson claimed that a woman who orgasms during sex is somehow becoming a man, a practice he frowns on. Hmm. Was he frowning or was he wishing? Whatever he was doing, Reverend Peterson spared himself the hard work of getting a woman off and turning her into a man and just went out and found a man, a whole bunch of men instead. Another tell, Reverend Peterson's ministry was a California-based brotherhood organization known as Bond. There was a Bond house in LA where Peterson lived with other male members of the, quote, Bond Brotherhood. Hey, straight guys, a quick word. If the name of your pastor's ministry could also be the name of a gay BDSM bondage fetish night in a club in Berlin, Bond, this Friday at the Bergen, that guy wants to fuck you. And if that guy is telling you not to make women come, that guy wants to make you come. And if that guy invites you to come live with him in his fetish club, excuse me, in his secret tree fort ministry for boys only, no girls allowed, he wants to fuck you. You can't trust that guy around you or your dick. Just like if some guy tells you he wants to be a youth pastor, you can't trust that guy around youth or our democratic process. But hey, whatever else all these icky pastors are guilty of, whatever crimes they've committed, however much they've violated the trust placed in them by their dupes, sorry, their marks, eh, sorry, their cash pigs, no, no, that's not it either. Sorry, they're faithfully tithing parishioners who are willing to hand over 10% of their incomes. At least none of these guys pulled on a dress and read a book to a child, because that would be wrong. All right, coming up on the Lovecast on the micro, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savage.love. Twice as much show, more questions, more answers, more guests, and no ads. Author and podcaster Lola Phoenix joins me. Her new book, The Anxious Person's Guide to Non-Monogamy, is out now, and Lola is here to take with me some of my listener questions about their polyamorous or non-monogamous relationships. Also out now, out every Tuesday, my sex advice column, Savage Love, which you can find at my website, savage.love slash savage love. All right, let's get to this week's calls. Dan, I'm a mid-30s female. I'm bisexual, female-preferring, living in Florida. And I'm calling because I would like a little bit of feedback about how to handle my relationship with my parents as it applies to me dating women. I recently came out to my conservative mother, and she reacted better than I expected, but not as good as I would have wanted, obviously, because of her religious and political beliefs. It was very difficult for her to... I guess, comprehend. And so she actually, one of the biggest things that was hard for her to handle was the fact that I was going to, at some point, probably tell the rest of the family who was also 
all conservative and also very, very religious. She asked that I not do that. And at some point, like I said, I am going to bring my partner home if I stay serious with this person. And I can't choose between my partner and my family during holidays. It's going to eventually come to that um, if I don't tell them. And then my family is going to ask her questions. So my mom will have to address the situation and she will either have to make up a lie or something. And it seems to be like one of these things where my mom doesn't understand. And what she's saying is she doesn't want to be preached at. And that's her reason why. But what she doesn't seem to understand also is that I've been hearing all the stuff I don't want to hear from her when I before I told her about how gay people should, you know, keep their romantic interests to themselves. They shouldn't hold hands in public when it makes other people uncomfortable and those sorts of things. And she, you know, she says stuff about wanting straight pride to exist and white pride to exist and which, by the way, my partner also happens to be black. So at this point, I'm not even really sure if I'm comfortable bringing my partner home. And we've had that discussion as well. So I think my my question to you is, where should I go from here? Because I'm surprised at my mom's positive reaction. I am surprised at her lack of yelling and anything like that. But I also would like to express to her and make her understand the fact that she, if she needs me to be in her life in the future and my partner who is not white, that she will need to let me share this information with the family regardless of how they feel about it. And this situation is not about her. So you were surprised by your mom's positively, relatively speaking, reaction to your coming out. It's possible that your mom is making similar assumptions uh, about the rest of the family, similar to the assumption that you made about her, that she would have a bad reaction to you coming out. And your mom is turning around and assuming that the rest of the family will have a bad reaction to you coming out. And that's possible. Also possible that the rest of the family will surprise your mother in the same way that your mother surprised you. There's only one way to find out, though, and that's to come out to the whole fucking family. And what do you risk here? If you come out to your whole fucking family and you wind up estranged from your whole fucking family and your mom, what have you lost? A bunch of homophobic, religious bigot, racist, awful people that you probably don't want in your queer life and certainly don't want to inflict on your black girlfriend. So, yeah, you won't have lost anything that you wouldn't want to lose. You won't have lost anything that if you were at sea, you wouldn't want to throw the fuck overboard anyway. I do think, however, you know, I came out decades ago to my religious parents, to my mom first. And one of the things, I don't think I've really ever talked about this in the show. One of the things my mom asked for was a little bit of time before I started telling the rest of the family. And then I have talked about this. Then we got into a situation where I had told some siblings, but not other siblings told some aunts, but not other aunts, one uncle, but not other uncles. And it was my mother who got to a point who, who said to me that I needed to come out to everybody because she couldn't keep track anymore. And I was out to her and not out to my father. And that was creating problems. And my mother, who was a very wise and intuitive person 
sat me down one day and said, it's, you're not coming out of the closet. You're yanking people into the closet with you. And it sucks. The closet sucks. I get it now. Cause I had forced my mom to be closeted about me being gay. But there was a, you know, a couple of weeks at the beginning, a month where she just said, give me a minute before you start telling other people. And I did, I gave her a minute before I started telling other people one at a time and swearing them to secrecy. And that ultimately was a problem. So I would meet your mother who surprised you by being a little bit more gracious about you being bi than you expected her to be. Give her that in return. Say, okay, I'm going to wait. I'm not waiting forever. I'm going to give you a month or two to process this, get used to it. Ask me any questions. Don't worry. No filters. Go ahead and ask the offensive questions and don't hold your mother's reaction against you or those questions against her. Answer her questions until she's sick of listening to you talk about queer shit and then tell her, all right, now I'm changing my Facebook. People still have Facebook. Do people still have Facebook? I hope not. You're changing your relationship status thingy job on Facebook and you're coming out about being in a same sex relationship and about who your girlfriend is. And I hope, I hope your mother by that point has come around. When I finally came out to everybody in the family, my mom, who never wanted to meet a boyfriend and needed time and had concerns, she made it very clear to my large, extended, working-class Irish Catholic family that anyone who had a problem with me had a much bigger problem with her. Maybe your mom will get there. Maybe your mom won't. She's already somewhere you didn't expect her to be, a little better about it than you expected. So I think you can live in hope. And then maybe your mom will run interference with the rest of your shitty family. And if she doesn't, if your mom backslides, if she retaliates against you emotionally because she just wanted you to never share this dirty, awful secret about you with anybody else, if the rest of your family is shitty and awful to you, well, then your choices about holidays, Christmas, whatever, are obvious. Our only leverage when we're an adult child with our families of origin, uh, you know, the only way we can pressure them to treat us with kindness and compassion and love is by threatening to withdraw ourselves from their lives. Our only leverage over our adult parents and family when we are adults is our presence. And if they can't treat you with respect and love and kindness and compassion, and that would require them to get over their homophobia and bullshit and then treat your girlfriend the same way, which would require them to get over their white pride bullshit, white pride parade bullshit, don't see them. And then light a little candle every day to thank God for making you a queer if that's what it took to get all of these shitty people that you happen to be related to out of your life and then free you, free up emotional time and space for you to create a family of choice that loves you and your partner for who you both are. Hey, Dan, is it possible to cheat in plain sight? I'm a 62-year-old cishet man who recently broke up with a little bit older than me by woman with whom I was with for four years. We were in a monogamous relationship, but we're discussing the idea of opening up. In our ending, the deal breaker was a date she had with two others that she told me about in advance, but characterized as a boudoir photo shoot and not as a straight up date for sex in which the other two would be fucking while my partner enjoyed the afternoon in the, in the room with them as a voyeur. 
I was upset because of what I thought was a purposeful mischaracterization of what the intent of the date was, plus the unilateral decision she made to participate in the first place, rather than making it a joint decision we did together. The net result of this was I felt managed by her and didn't feel she was entirely forthcoming with me. She, in turn, was furious with me because she felt she had given advanced knowledge and was in no way obligated to do more than that. She felt that any making decisions together or requests of mine for emotional reassurance about our relationship was codependent bullshit. This way of talking about opening up our relationship was shocking to me, actually, because we hadn't ever talked this way to each other before, nor talked in this way about opening up our relationship. At the time, I chalked it up to heat of the moment stuff. When people argue, right, stuff gets said that needs to be apologized for so the relationship can repair and we can come back together into the loving relationship I believed us to have. As it turned out, however, while I was the one who apologized for my side of the street, she never did, saying she hadn't done anything wrong and therefore had nothing to apologize for. Now that I've had enough hindsight on what happened to us in the end, I see pretty clearly that by the time she scheduled the date with her two friends, she had already decided that our relationship wasn't what she wanted anymore. But here's the thing. She hadn't ever said anything to me, much less initiated a conversation about our relationship in an attempt to address whatever the issues might have been. She kept it to herself and went on with our relationship as if nothing was the matter. So in the end, I see that the date with her two friends was essentially a way for her to step out on me, but through a combination of bad faith and an attempt at gaslighting it as entirely ethical because she had told me in advance, I'm looking at this combination of things as tantamount to cheating in plain sight. What do you think, Dan? Do I have a point here, or am I being some sort of naive codependent, and I need to find a 12-step meeting to attend? It's a little hard to track exactly what was going on. Your ex-girlfriend, you two had been discussing the possibility at some point of opening the relationship, and she told you she had a date to go to somebody else's, some other couple's boudoir photo session. And in reality, that turned out to be a sexual and erotic experience for her. Maybe she was masturbating while she was watching them get their photos taken, or maybe... you know, being watched by her was crucial to their enjoyment of whatever it was that they were doing that whoever it was that the photographer was photographing. But yeah, if she didn't tell you exactly what it was or make you aware of just how erotic or sensual an experience this was going to be for her and how involved she was going to be, in the erotics and and the sex going on in that moment. Okay, well, yeah, she hid that from you and maybe she wanted out of the relationship and this was her engineering her way out, her demonstrating to you that she didn't care about your feelings. In which case, great, great that the relationship's over. You needed to get out of this relationship. And sounds like she said some things that she refused to apologize for or you said some shitty things and she refused to accept your apology, okay, it's over, it's over. And you can obsess about whether she did or didn't give you an opportunity to highlight whatever the issues were in the relationship that were making her so unhappy that she no longer prioritized your feelings 
or your comfort or didn't feel the need to disclose to you exactly what was going to go on in that photo shoot because she wanted out anyway. And so she just wanted to avoid that awkward conversation. Ah, I'm over talking it. You're over thinking it. It's over. Was she cheating in plain sight? Sure. If it makes you feel better. And and I don't disagree. If she said, I'm going to go do this thing, this kind of dirty thing, and you're not invited. And then she claimed that because she let you know she was going to go do that thing and you didn't put screw and screw together and realize just how sexual a thing that was she was going off to do. Yeah. And then it gave her butt cover to say, I I told you and you're not allowed to be upset. You're allowed to be upset. You're allowed to be upset. Even if she's allowed to turn around and say, Hey, you should have realized you should have known what it was I was doing here. All right. Now I'm done thinking about this. I'm talking about this for three minutes. I'm done. This relationship is over. Go find a new partner a new girlfriend, and stop trying to parse who is right, who is wrong. It's over. It's all you need to know. Go forth, find a new girlfriend, find a new sex partner, have some new fun. Hey, Dan. So I am calling to get some advice for um, a friend of mine. She came to me for advice, and I'm kind of stuck as to what to tell her other than just telling her to go to therapy. So pretty much the case is that she is newly married. Her husband is a trans man who comes from a family like South Texas who don't really accept him, calls him by his dead name. Um, he's had a lot of trauma in the past with that. And he's kind of like really hard-headed and refused to go to therapy for all of his issues. But anyway, the the thing that came up the other night when we were all drinking is that he enjoys very violent sex, kind of crossing the line to the point of consensual non-consent, but kind of without the consent part. And I guess it's something that he's done in the past. And that type of thing is something that he's into, but she's not into at all. And it's like a hard, hard limit for her. And she came to me and she is saying that she's worried that he's going to resent her for this. Um, I know that he would never cheat to get it elsewhere. Um, and she knows that too. And that's why she thinks that after time that he's just going to keep resenting her um, over it. And so, you know, I told her the thing is like, well, you need to, you know, go to therapy together. He needs to work on his issues. You know, maybe you guys could find some sort of common ground that kind of dips into it, but you're still comfortable. Is there anything else I could tell her to help her with this? I mean, I'm kind of like on the other side of it where like the CNC side where I've had experience with that, but I'm not sure when it comes to him and his kind of lack of getting the actual consent part. He's a really good person. I hope I'm not making him sound like shit. Um, I'm sure I don't know the whole story, but it's just what came out when we were all drinking, and I just really want to help my friends out. Consensual non-consent without the consent part is violence. It's rape. It's sexual assault. So, yeah... There are people who will put themselves in circumstances where sex is happening and it is dramatic and rough and they're kind of rolling with it, whether they're the dom in that scene or the sub in that scene. And sometimes people just 
go for it. And I don't think people should. I think people should use their words. But there are cases, there are times in our lives where shit just explodes and we're rolling with it. And so I just, I guess what I'm saying is I don't want to pathologize your friend's boyfriend too much. Maybe they've had experiences where they were just reading someone right and they were engaged in a kind of non-verbal consensual non-verbally consented to consensual non-consent scenario and got a taste for it. There are some people out there who are into Dom sub shit who think talking about it in advance ruins it. I think those people are crazy because if you don't talk about it in advance and you guess wrong, particularly if you are the Dom or the, as you describe it, violent person in that encounter, you could wind up, really traumatizing someone. You could wind up committing a crime. You could wind up, and rightfully so, having your ass tossed in jail. All because you didn't want to use your words. All because you thought it was sexier for that kind of DS, violent, power exchangey sex to happen, quote unquote, naturally or spontaneously. So yeah, I think your friend's boyfriend needs to get his ass into therapy and see a sex positive counselor. If he won't, okay, then it sounds like your friend feels guilty that she can't provide her boyfriend with the kind of sexual experiences that he wants most. And I infer from that that there has been some conversation between them about the kind of sex he really likes and the kind of sex that they have together and the gap between those two things. So they are using their words to some extent, they need to use more of their words than they have been, maybe with a a, a therapist or a counselor. I'm glad your friend is standing their ground. You know, if you aren't into ravishment, if you aren't into consensual non-consent, which is sometimes called rape play, rape role play, people are less comfortable with that label now. A lot of people call this ravishment play because, you know, when you're ravished, you are overwhelmed and taken by someone that you really want to overwhelm and take you. So you agree not to use your words in that moment and they get to pretend they're just taking you, but you've indicated to them that that's fine with you and you have a safe word and you have a way out and, you know, that kind of play is play that you should engage in with a known partner that you trust, who's already demonstrated to you that they can read your physical cues, your nonverbal cues, as you role play that scenario where one person is taking and another person is being taken and gives off some signs that they're being taken against their will. That's a kind of theater for two with your pants off and hard-ons and wet pussies, and that's fine. But that is some varsity-level shit, that is some potentially traumatizing shit if people are, you know, their judgment is impaired by drugs or alcohol or they just don't know what the fuck they're doing and don't know how to course correct as they read somebody else's cues about what really is a a no, no, and what's a no, no, please, no, don't. Uh, this whole situation makes me really uncomfortable. Your friend, I'm worried for your friend that she is identifying with the boyfriend's needs, that she feels like she's 
letting him down or failing him, prioritizing his needs over hers when his needs in this instance, or his wants, his desires, not needs, involve a kind of sex play that your friend not only isn't into and isn't a place I think someone who wants to be GGG can go, good giving and game for anything within reason. CNC, consensual non-consent, is a kink too far. It falls outside the within reason limit to being game. And your friend is going to have to not identify with her boyfriend's needs or prioritize her boyfriend's wants and needs over her own. And this may mean that they are not sexually compatible, that they're not right for each other. And you say that your friend doesn't want want him to put in a position where he's going to cheat. But my God, if this is what he wants, then... I hope he would, with your friend's consent, if he has to have it and she wants him to have it and can't do it, she would encourage him to not cheat, but to go get that shit elsewhere. But not go get it elsewhere until he is ready to use his words to get consent before engaging in consensual non-consent play. Because the absence of taking consent of consensual non-consent, literally consent is name-checked twice in consensual non-consent. Consent is important and it has to be there, has to be present. It has to be given, asked for. Oh, yeah. Dude needs therapy. And your friend needs to be told that if she wants to end the relationship for this reason, because they're fundamentally sexually incompatible, that is a legitimate reason to end this relationship. Doesn't mean she can't be this dude's friend. Doesn't mean they can't love each other still, but they might not be right for each other. And if he's not willing to talk about this with someone, then he might not be in good enough working order to be in a relationship in the first place with her or anyone else. Hey, Dan, 33-year-old cis female calling with a question. So I have been dating a guy for the past three months or so. It's a short-term relationship. I was recently out of a relationship. You know, he's leaving town. We both agreed, let's just have a summer fling, and it's been great. And early on in our dating, I expressed to him the desire to try to be more dominant in the bedroom. Like, nothing too kinky, not really into, like, degradation or you know, anything too extreme, but just kind of adopting a persona that's more in the realm of like goddess worship, you know, he wants me so badly and I won't let him have it, kind of teasing, uh, more of kind of that realm of, of a femdom scenario. And he was totally down. The problem is he's been suffering from ED. And so I've not really known how to initiate or explore this kind of dominant side of myself when I think a pivotal part of the turn-on is the desire of my partner and me kind of not letting them have it. And a manifestation of that desire is being hard. And I want to explore this with him. I mean, 
you know, if not with him, someone else. And I might encounter this with someone else. And just curious if you or your listeners have advice on how to fulfill or initiate this kind of play, you know, when like a pivotal part of it, which is your partner's visible arousal is not so, you can't really count on it, I guess. There are a lot of things potentially going on here short of undiagnosed but diagnosable erectile dysfunction. He could certainly get his hands pretty easily on a Viagra prescription and dose himself before your dom sub play scenes. But I'm curious, you say you began dating him and then you began to talk about wanting to explore being the dominant partner, being the goddess. Was this a problem? Did he have a hard time keeping it up before you introduced this dom sub element? I'm not suggesting here that the dom sub play is a turnoff for him and he's not being honest with you. He may indeed be aroused and turned on by this new kind of play, dom sub teasing denial. But when you think about, compare in your head, contrast what you're doing now when you do DS play versus what you were doing before when I assume it wasn't a problem that he wasn't getting hard because he was getting hard. In vanilla sex, maybe there was more skin-to-skin contact. Uh, Maybe there was more sort of, you know, rolling around together and that caused him to be hard. There's some guys' dicks that just go up and down during sex. You know, when you're making out naked, pressed against each other, he's hard. When he's on his knees going down on you and focused on your pleasure, he's soft. Some guys need skin-to-skin, dick-to-something contact to maintain an erection. Were you, when you were having vanilla sex at the outset, at the beginning of this short-term relationship, and congratulations, uh, it sounds like you're having a good short-term relationship, uh, were you engaged in more direct contact that was sort of constant and rolling and that helped him stay hard? And now, you know, he's on the other side of the room, you're not letting him touch you, you're teasing him, you're denying him. Maybe he's aroused, and you just need to use your words and talk about this. Maybe he's aroused, but he needs... Something on his dick or his dick to get and stay hard. That something doesn't have to be you. You're the goddess. You're the dom. In that moment, you can tell him, if you're comfortable with it, to masturbate. You say you're 33 years old. I've often encountered straight people out there who think that if they, you know, they or their partner have to touch themselves during sex, If she has to play with her clit to climax during PIV or if he, you know, pulls out for a second and strokes himself for a second or strokes himself to get hard that, oh, my God, I don't turn you on enough. Oh, my God, you're not aroused enough just by me and from me. And, you know, if you watch a lot of gay porn, which I've done or had a lot of gay sex, which I've had, you just don't see that in gay land. You see a lot of guys uh, when they're having gay sex, playing with their own dick, stroking themselves, diving back in. Maybe that's just all he needs. And if you want to deny him your body, you want to deny him your touch, maybe if you want to see how aroused he is, you're going to have to order him to touch himself. All that said, you know, it is possible that DS play that, you know, when he was willing to go there because it was something you wanted to explore, it's possible it just doesn't work for him. Maybe it is a boner killer for him and a libido 
killer for him, which doesn't mean you two can't continue to see each other until you move away or he moves away. I don't remember who's moving away. Somebody's moving away. Uh, it just might mean that this DS uh, kind of sex play, this dominance that you're exploring, you might not be able to explore it with him. That might be something you want to save for your next partner. Hey, Dan, I am a 30-year-old bisexual woman living in the Midwest. Uh, I recently started seeing another bisexual woman that I met online. She is polyamorous and is currently married to a man. So we met, and I think we were expecting something really chill and low-key, and we really developed very strong feelings for each other in obviously a short amount of time. I get along great with her and with him. We go on dates all together. I've gone on dates with him, um, but primarily it's me and her that spend a lot of time together. I knew going in that they were going to see other people and I was really okay with that, or at least I thought I was. I knew that she went on a date recently and when she told me about it, I just had these really strong feelings of insecurity and doubt and and loneliness. They've been seeing other women and couples together and um, it's hard because I am single and recently had a rough breakup with someone that I was very much in love with. So I know that I'm still healing from that, but I just, I'm at a point where I don't really know how to move through these feelings. I thought of doing a don't ask, don't tell policy with her, but to me that just feels deceitful. And I want to tell her about my experiences and I want her to share hers with me because she deserves them. She she hasn't had them before. Our dynamic has been really, really wonderful. But these feelings have just been really hard. And I don't know how to process and I don't know how to move forward. And I want to keep seeing them. But part of me just wonders if this just isn't the life for me, even though like I I feel like I want it to be because I understand people loving more than one person at a time. And I understand wanting to know more than just a primary partner, but I just don't know how to move through and get to a place where this is my life. Here to help tackle this question, Lola Phoenix, the author of the new book, The Anxious Person's Guide to Non-Monogamy, Your Guide to Open Relationships, Polyamory, and Letting Go. Lola is also the author of a weekly advice column and hosts the podcast, Non-Monogamy Help, both of which you can find at nonmonogamyhelp.com. Hey, Lola, thanks for jumping on the uh, internet today to talk with me about this. Yeah, no worries. Thank you so much for having me. And congratulations on the new book. How long was it in the works? How long have you been writing and thinking about open relationships and polyamory? So the column has existed, I think, since 2017. And then the podcast came later on. Um, But I've been writing stuff since about 2015. um, And the book since 2020. So fairly long time. And this is a book specifically pitched at anxious people. When it comes to opening a relationship, isn't everybody an anxious person? 
Yes. And that's exactly what I think. I think that pretty much the idea of starting into non-monogamy in any way, whether you're opening a relationship, trying to be polyamorous or however you define it, I do think that it makes most people anxious and therefore it definitely applies to most people. And the idea is that whether you're starting out um, and just trying something out or you've kind of been doing it for a while and you're thinking, oh, I'm feeling really bad, I'm hoping that this is applicable for you at whatever stage of your journey. It's ironic that, you know, we look around our lives and we see so many examples of uh, monogamous relationships that ended badly. I don't think every relationship that ends is a failure, so I don't like to describe all relationships that end as failed, but there's a lot of examples in our lives of monogamous relationships that ended disastrously. And yet people seem, you know, you, why don't people feel anxious about making monogamous commitments? Or maybe people do. People have commitment phobia. Maybe that's what people think about when they're about to make a monogamous commitment. But there does seem to be, despite all the evidence around us that monogamous relationships aren't necessarily cakewalks either, people are more anxious about open or poly relationships. Is it just because having, just knowing you're going to have more people's feelings or needs to take into consideration and juggle makes you anxious? Or is it the anticipation of jealousy in that open relationship that makes a person anxious? I think that the first big thing is that firstly, you grow up your entire life, usually in a monogamous centric culture, and you're thinking about monogamy, even when you're young, you're thinking about different relationships, you have a cultural script for monogamy your whole life. And you have what's uh, called the relationship escalator, which is a great concept where you have different stages that kind of encourage you to feel secure. So you have all of this backing that gives you kind of a foothold. And I do think people are anxious when they have their first relationships, but usually they have them when they're very young. And by the time that they get to the point where they're opening their relationship or they're trying non-monogamy, they don't really remember how anxious they felt at the beginning. So I think that it's a combination of like culture, just not giving them any kind of idea of how this is supposed to work. And then also like people are aware of open relationships. Like it was a status on Facebook when Facebook first started, like people are aware, but the idea is open relationships don't work. Then that's kind of like what everyone yeah. sort of thinks. Right. Define the relationship escalator. Cause I'd like to ask you if there's something comparable in, in openness or polyamory. What, when people refer to the relationship escalator, are they talking about? What do you mean? So the relationship escalator is a concept coined by a person who I can't remember at this point, but if you Google it, it will take you to their site. And that is um, a concept coined by a polyamorous person to describe kind of like the steps that society tells you that you should go through to get to security, right? So you date somebody for a while, then maybe you move in, you get married, you have kids. There's a kind of general idea of going up to a certain point where you're kind of together and this is more established. And I call it kind of a cultural script. It's like a way that society tells you that this should go and milestones that tell you that you've progressed to a certain point. What I love about the, the metaphor, I guess, of the relationship escalator is that escalators, when they're going up, are hard to get off before mm, they reach yeah. the top. So you, you begin mm -hmm. to date, you get serious, you commit, you move in together. Okay, I guess you're supposed to get engaged now. Now you're supposed to get married. Now you're supposed to get kids. If you want to back off or back out at any time, once you're on mm -hmm. that particular kind of relationship ex escalator with those expectations, running down an escalator and getting off it is hard. Yeah, now the, yeah, definitely. What would, if you had to describe a, a relationship escalator in polyamory, what would that look like? 
What would be the stages of that escalator? I think that it would be hard because it depends on what kind of polyamory you're interested in. If you do want a type of polyamory where you have kids together or you share property together or that sort of thing, then those milestones could get to that point. Um, I definitely think meeting family is one of those things that kind of shows a kind of more of a commitment um, moving in together. So it's it's really hard to build a kind of escalator when it comes to polyamory because it really depends on the people and what they want and what their idea of commitment is. And I think that the good thing is that you can build your own escalator and build your own milestones, but that's also kind of the bad thing because that does mean you don't have that backing and that kind of reassurance. So l- let's talk about the caller's particular situation. I hear from a lot of people who say kind of what the caller said, I understand polyamory, I get polyamory, I want polyamory, but I find it hard. Or as the caller says, wonderful, dynamic, hard feelings. What would you say to this person as the, you know, the author of The Anxious Person's Guide to Non-Monogamy about these feelings that are obviously making her anxious? So the thing that I had in mind with this caller was, firstly, is that I do think a lot of people put the bar really high for themselves in polyamory in a way that isn't kind of fair to them. The thing that strikes me about this is there are are two things. Firstly, is that does this person really need to know all of this information? Like there's a difference between don't ask, don't tell, and you can have don't ask, don't tell, but you don't have to have tell all all the time. Like you don't have, there's not two settings on that. There can be a little bit of information given. And also you need to consider the consent of the third parties as well. Because for example, you know, if somebody went out on a date with me, I would hope that they would ask me before they were telling about our sexual experiences to someone else. And because I don't necessarily feel comfortable with that, or I'd want to be asked. So there's third party consent that's also important. So I think the two things that I see immediately, other than like, yes, you're going to be anxious, that's very, very normal, is that are you forcing yourself into situations where you're listening to all this information from this person that you're dating that you don't really have to? I totally understand wanting to share everything with one another and and not not wanting to feel like you're hiding anything and not wanting to feel deceitful, but that doesn't necessarily mean you need to know all the information all the time. And it is possible to gradually increase that over time. And it is possible to like, be like, Hey, I need a break. Or can we talk about this later? Like it, it doesn't have to be, it's the same thing within monogamous relationships. Like you'd be honest about your feelings, but that doesn't mean you're completely 100% honest all the time to where you're like, actually, I hate your face today. Like you don't have to you don't have to say everything and, you know. And what you're not ready to hear now, you might be ready to hear later. I think it's important to emphasize here that this caller just got into this relationship. This is someone yeah. that you're, you just began to see. And, you know, maybe, you know, two years into this relationship, they were telling you about a date. It would land differently. You would feel more secure in the relationship than you do now. But I can understand why the caller might feel insecure. You know, she just met these people. She began dating them as a couple. And the woman that she's interested in and really connecting to is dating other singles and people together as a couple with her partner. And that's a lot of churn. And even if you were in a place where you could handle, uh, you know, your poly secondary partner or if it's a non-hierarchical polyamorous relationship, your other partner dating other people, what, what would I think would be making me anxious at this point if I was the caller in this circumstance is how much room or time is there really going to be for me? in this relationship 
Will I get my needs met? Will I be not hierarchically prioritized, but a priority in any way? Just for just logistically, could I be? And that's maybe I think part of what's making the caller feel insecure. You know, where's the NRE? Where's the focus on me and us and what we've got that's brand new? You're already like scheduling new dates, new people. And I would just worry, uh, do they feel as strongly about me right now as I feel about them? And also, is there going to be time for me if I really get invested in this relationship? Because there's Mm -hmm. poly, you know, there's open relationships and poly relationships and all different kinds of models and structures. There's also that, it's like that famous Supreme Court justice who said, who defined pornography as you know it when you see it. There's also poly that's too much of a crowd and you know it when you see it. And some people can have four or five poly partners and some people can like integrate a large polycule and nobody's getting mm-hmm. short shrift. Other yeah. people pack in the partners until people fall off or wander away. And that would be my worry in this circumstance. We call it polysaturation. At what point do you become polysaturated? <laughs> but yeah, I think that definitely the other thing that I was going to suggest is like knowing how you want non-monogamy to be in your life logistically is a huge thing that can ground a lot of people. And if you know that, okay, I definitely want a partner that I share a house with or a living situation with and a partner that I don't, and you have that clear idea, then that's it's not necessarily going to completely work out that way, but you know that that's your goal. And if you know someone that you're dating has this type of goal and this is how you fit into their piece, that is also something that can make things a lot easier. So if they have an ideal, do they know how many partners they want to have? Do they know how many nights are going to stay away from each other or what, like, are, is there a plan <laughs> or, and mm-hmm. that will kind of help you ground yourself a little bit because you'll know, okay, there is a place for me within their whole uh, spectrum of, of whatever they've got going on. But just zooming out, to 30,000 feet and leaving aside this particular caller's particular circumstance, when people bring up insecurity, doubt, loneliness, and say, maybe because I feel insecure, because I feel doubt, because I sometimes feel lonely, I'm not cut out for polyamory. I always want to remind them that you can feel all those things in a monogamous relationship too. Yes. And and one of the best ways to kind of judge this is think about how would you feel about the situation with a close friend? So even in this situation, like if you had a close friend and you recently went through a breakup and your close friend is like hooking up with all kinds of people and is really, really excited, you might struggle to listen to your friend's experiences. As much as you love your friend and you want to be close to your friend, you might struggle and you're not even necessarily dating them. So I think sometimes people expect, like, like I said, they set the bar so high for themselves. And because they hear that open relationships don't work, they feel so much pressure and put so much pressure on themselves to just be Vulcans, basically, to not have any emotions about anything, to just be happy. Or if they're going to have an emotion, it has to be happy, be happy about everything. Like, and you're not going to be happy about everything. (laughs) Yeah. And let's be honest, like I'm in an open relationship, polyamorous relationships. You are too, have been too, I Mm -hmm. assume. They are more work. They are hard work. They are sometimes a greater degree of difficulty, if not in part because society isn't set up in such a way to acknowledge, honor, or center them. But also just there's more people. There's more feelings to navigate. There's more to negotiate. I think, you know, those of us who do what we do and are who we are and write about what we write about or talk about on our podcast, we have to be honest. Yeah, it's hard work. It's harder work. It's worth it. 
Yeah, I think I think that ultimately nobody can tell you if it's worth it or not for you, just like any other major life decision, right? Like nobody can tell you if it's worth it for you to have children. Nobody can tell you if it's worth it for you to move to another country. Like this is something that you have to see for yourself. And I do think that it does it does take a lot out of you in terms of like, you know, just being anxious because you don't have any guides to follow as much. You don't have always people even, you know, talking to friends about it. Like you may face the fact that if you talk to a friend about it, your friend will be like, well, you're in an open relationship and the open relationships don't work. So there's a lot that you take for granted in monogamy that you realize you don't have in polyamory. Right. But sometimes when a monogamous person says to me, oh, that looks like so much effort. I prefer this simpler model. I'm like, okay, yeah, I get it. It is simpler having one partner, much simpler. I like the variety, the adventure. Like there's a lot that comes with having multiple partners that you're giving up, but you are also avoiding, if you're going to be a monogamous relationship, I'm sorry, some drama and some conflict that wouldn't come up in a monogamous relationship because there's just two people to balance. You know, another person, another couple of people, more potential points of entry for drama and conflict. Yeah, and more heartbreak potential for you. You know, more relationships, more, more heartbreak. Uh, yeah, exactly. It comes with ups and downs. Yeah, my husband and I always say to each other, even when we're in the thick of fighting about this shit, well, we're not bored. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you won't be hey. bored. <laughs> well, you know, you hear about that a lot in monogamous long-term relationships. People are bored and the spark has gone out and they're not connecting um, and they've almost, in a sense, run out of things to talk about. Polly and multiple other partners, you've somehow never run out of fucking shit to talk about with your primary long-term partner. Can we keep you on the phone for another couple calls? Yeah, sure. That's fine. Hi, Dan. I'm a 22-year-old cis bisexual male on the high-functioning end of the autistic spectrum. I'm in a polyamorous relationship with my fiancé. Her and I have been together for about three years, and we have a 10-year age gap. She's 32. My issue is about sex drive between nesting partners. I have a very high sex drive, and most of the sex that I have outside of the is outside of the home with couples or single men that I meet up with by myself. My partner and I go through dry spells of weeks to months at a time. These times can be very difficult for me mentally because I don't understand why it's happening. And on top of that, it gets very frustrating for me sexually to the point where I feel spiteful towards my partner. Whenever I try to initiate, things get very awkward very quickly. Instead of telling me that she doesn't want to have sex or give me a reason why she doesn't want to have sex, she'll just back away or push me away or tell me that she's busy, even if she's not doing anything. I've asked her if she doesn't feel comfortable having sex or if if there is a problem or, or you know, just, just being a good partner. I'm trying to figure out, or I, I have in the past tried to figure out, like, if it's me or if it's something else that's making her feel uncomfortable. And half the time she just, once again, says she's busy. She just brings in another topic to distract the conversation or she just won't say anything, which is worse than a regular rejection. This type of rejection on a consistent basis is really taxing for me mentally, especially as a highly functioning autistic person who needs communication to be clear. At the beginning of our relationship, I told her that I'm someone who needs physical touch, and she also told me at one point that she would ideally have sex three to four times a week. Since the NRE is gone, we've never had consistent sex. And with the nesting partner, physical touch and relatively consistent sex are things that I've discovered that I need. 
but we are polyamorous, so I can go and have sex or get attention from anybody else anytime I want. But doesn't that mean I should be okay with having little to no sex with my life partner? I love her very much, and I just don't know what to do. So I kind of know the answer to this question, but I'm going to kick it to you, ask anyway. Does being poly mean you don't need sex or affection or shouldn't need it or shouldn't have feelings about it when you're not getting it from your primary or nesting partner? No, polyamory is not about finding multiple semi-sustaining relationships until you reach a level of permissible stasis. It's not, let me just get like a need I'm not getting met by one partner. Like it sometimes can be about that, but that doesn't mean that you don't have any other needs or that, oh, well, you can just go somewhere else. And it seems like there is more to this story. Like, you know, rejection is going to happen. Mismatched libidos are going to happen. That's fine. But not knowing why is a huge deal. And the person not being able to explain why and the fact that the caller keeps asking and is basically kind of being redirected. I mean, there's, there's some issue there and it, it would concern me if, if the person has never talked about this. I mean, can it be explored in therapy Is the person willing to go to therapy? Like, Maybe there's there's some kind of trauma that she's been through, but it's understandable for the caller to feel sad, rejected, and, and to find it hard to put up with that for a long period of time. And no, it's not like, oh, I can just go and sleep with other people. It hurts. Like, it's hard. So I think that it's about, like, finding out if this person is willing to go to therapy, if this person is willing to explore how to say no, even in a, in a nicer way. And how, how and why it is that they might feel like they have a low sex drive. Maybe they just do in general and then you're not sexually compatible. And that's fine to, to split up based on that. I have worst case scenario disorder. And this is one instance listening to this call. He wants to know why and she won't give him an answer. And I don't think it's because she necessarily needs to get into therapy to figure out what that answer is. It might help to get into therapy to have a mediated conversation about what that answer is. I suspect yeah. she knows the answer and is afraid to share it with him for fear of hurting his feelings, devastating his ego. You know, I hate to invoke a 90s sex advice racket cliche, but it sounds like she's just not that into you. And maybe she's a fray sexual. Maybe she loses physical attraction to a long-term partner and you're in the long-term partner slot. But if that's what you're signing up for, they're engaged to be married. You're engaged to be married. This isn't a problem that tends to get better over time in a marriage, a lack of desire or a, a yeah. crazy libido. libido. So you either need to exit this relationship. I would advise the caller, like, exit this relationship. You're only 22 years old, a little young to sign up for the, you know, the kind of accommodation or whatever compromises you have, might have to make to be with this person if you want to be with them because it's not making you happy and you don't have an answer. But I think sometimes in the not answer, there's an answer, which is she doesn't want to tell you, doesn't want to fuck you, also doesn't want to tell you she doesn't want to fuck you, but clearly based on her actions, doesn't want to fuck you. Can you have a companion at marriage? Would you be happy? And the answer obviously is no. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's no telling in terms of therapy how long it would take to work that out. Like, I think if, if it's something that, you know, you're hoping you're going to get a quick answer for, I don't think it'll be a quick answer because whatever the reason is, it's not going to be shared in, in, in any easy way at all. And you're 22 years old, not to be ageist about yeah. it, but 22 years old, 
don't don't get married at 22, even to someone that everything was going great with. Just please don't. We have a policy at the Lovecast: no marriages before 25, preferably no marriages before 30. All right, we have one more call. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm a 30-something cis pansexual woman who's been involved in polyamorous relationships for nearly a decade. For the past couple of months, I've been seeing a man who I met on Field. Field man has one other partner, and he's told me she's his first ever polyamorous relationship. I love group sex, so Field Man and I talked about planning a double date with her and one of my long-term partners. My long-term partner and I looked the girl up on Instagram to find a photo so he could see what she looks like, and we discovered she runs a public Instagram account where she tells stories about the people she dates and posts photos of herself. The content made us not want to meet this person. I watched it for four days, and in that time, she did several things I felt were unsafe and unethical, including referring to people by their job titles posting screenshots of her texts with people, even though the names are blurred, and complaining about people's mundane behaviors and asking her followers to vote on whether they were red flags or not. On the fourth day, she clearly blocked my account from viewing. I already spoke to Fieldman and told him I'm no longer comfortable with meeting her based on what I saw on this Instagram account, and I asked if he knew about it. He said that she had told him it existed at the beginning of their relationship, but she asked him never to view it, so he never has. I already decided I will not ever consent to meeting this girl or bringing her around my other partners because I would never expose myself or others to someone whose social media posts seem to cross these boundaries regarding consent. She isn't asking the people she dates for permission to talk about them in this way or publicize their information. Rather, she asks Fieldman not to view the content while still spreading it to the general public. Uh, I told Fieldman these behaviors make me feel this is a person who's not safe for me to be around. And he was a good communicator. And he told me he understood and wouldn't try to plan a double date anymore and would have a heart to heart with her about the consent issues around the account. My questions about Fieldman. I really like him and would love to integrate him into a large poly slash swinger group I see regularly. However, I'm now feeling like maybe he's too inexperienced with polyamory and I'm thinking of just dumping him outright. In my opinion, he was overly naive and assuming it was important for him to like give his consent to not view the Instagram account just because this girl asked for it and she told him it was anonymous. I worry this girl will eventually post something about me even if I never meet her. What do you think? Should I dump this guy to keep myself absolutely safe or should I keep seeing him and just avoid his other partner? So, Lola Phoenix, uh, this seems like something that might make a person just getting into polyamory feel very anxious. The metamor of your new poly partner who puts everything on their social media. Well, the first thing that might be helpful for anyone in this situation is that actually there's something called the Digital Millennial Copyright Act, the DMCA. And you can actually use that if people share messages or anything that you've written, because what you've written is copyright to you. You can actually share that and get that removed from websites or maybe from social media. I wouldn't, you know, bet place all the bets on it, but it might be something that you can use if you found somebody is sharing something you've written that you do not not consent to. You can make a DMCA request to have it taken down. So that's the first thing. There is not going to create route. a lot of like comedy or or good feeling in a polyamorous polycule if one person yeah. is getting <laughs> cease and desist letters from from you. I don't think that's a recipe yeah. for a functioning polyamorous relationship. Even if you don't include that person who has no filters on social yeah. media. Yeah, and and I think I'm going to argue that this 
you know, person willing to date somebody who's doing this isn't necessarily due to inexperience. And one of the things that's kind of a downside sometimes to polyamory or open relationships, and when I describe this, it's going to sound a little bitchy and I don't mean for it to be, but you kind of get to see the standards that your partners have for what they're willing to accept in other people. Ooh. And sometimes... It's not what you wanted to know because we have this ideal from monogamy that you've won the race and you're the best choice and that you've won because you're the best choice. And then when you see what your partners are willing to put up with or what they're willing to choose, it sometimes paints them in a very different light. And it might make you wonder about yourself. Like they're dating this person who's awful. Am I awful? Yeah. I mean, if you want to, I don't think you should necessarily dumb someone because they're inexperienced, but if you're if you're not happy with the fact that they're happy with dating someone who's doing this, that is fine. And that's totally acceptable. And I would definitely say that like warning other people about the things that she posts, if you know that they're going to date her is probably about as ethical as her posting it, maybe even more so. So yeah, I, I definitely understand Want not wanting to date him because of this, because that makes sense. But again, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't chalk it up to inexperience because you may run across this, not necessarily this particular situation, but a situation where someone you're dating is dating someone else and that creates a moral or ethical conflict. That is something you're going to probably run across. One of the red flags, if you're going to date people, date couples, is that couples swearing you to secrecy is being told that you don't have the right to like confide in your friends about what you're doing and what you're going through, which is a real problem. You know, anytime someone that you're involved with romantically or sexually is like, you can't tell anybody anything about this. That is the biggest red flag. I've seen that, you know, not just when, you know, 24 year olds are dating 17 year olds um, or sexually abusing or exploiting someone like in super terrible examples, but you also see it, you know, sometimes in polyland where a couple is socially monogamous, but not, you know, sexually non-monogamous, but socially monogamous, and they don't want anybody to know, and they swear someone to secrecy. And then that person can't gut check their reactions on what they're being asked or what they're doing with their friends, which is so important. And so yes. I, I feel a little torn about this because you people live so much of their lives online now. There's a difference mm-hmm. between sharing what you're going through privately through DMs to get a gut check mm-hmm. from your friends and just like creating a narrative to entertain tens of thousands of followers on Instagram. But I don't want to leave this with, you know, giving people the impression that anybody you're dating single or a couple ever has a right to tell you that you can't tell other people what you're doing, what you've been asked to do, what the relationship is like. Because Mm -hmm. when you're isolated from that kind of input feedback, bullshit calling, red flag pointing outing from your friends, you're vulnerable. So people who yeah. date couples, you have a right to share that experience. Couples who are dating somebody have a right to like share that experience, but there's sharing it and then there's blaring it or blasting it out. Yeah. Or and with people's work titles. Yeah. And if I don't know what state this person is, but especially with people's work titles, like, and I know like polyamory is kind of in this weird nebulous place. And I tend to think that like, the, the hammer falls on people depending upon lots of other things that are going on in their lives. Um, but it's not necessarily fully safe to be like sharing this with people's work titles either. That is kind of the thing yeah. that concerns me the most. Yeah. Sharing there's got th- those lines between sharing, creating content, gossiping, mm-hmm. 
it's another case of like, you know, it when you see it, like if you're being gossiped yeah. about by somebody that you dated, that's one thing. If someone you dated confided in a mutual friend or a friend about something that felt off about the relationship and you found out about that, I don't think you have a right to feel angry about that. But somebody no. who's creating content, somebody's making a sitcom on Twitter or Instagram about you and your relationship with them without your consent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's you should run. And I don't think this particular caller, I don't think it'd be possible for you to have a relationship that's walled off uh, from this poster with that poster's boyfriend. So, th so I would come down on the dump him side. Yeah. And I think if they're basically telling people that they're dating not to go on the profile, then I wouldn't trust that they would, even if they gave their word to say like, oh, I'll never share anything about you. I, I still wouldn't trust that. Nah. Oh my God. You know what they're going to do then? They're going to tell you not to go on the profile. You're going to tell them, okay, I won't go on the profile. They're going to put something up on the profile that's not okay, that violated your privacy. You're going to complain about it. And then they're going to play the victim because you promised them you wouldn't go to their profile. Yeah. That, Beware that seems, of these people. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely don't, don't be around anyone who forbids you from doing stuff like that. Lola Phoenix, the author of The Anxious Person's Guide to Non-Monogamy, Your Guide to Open Relationships, Polyamory, and Letting Go. Find her weekly column and her podcast at nonmonogamyhelp.com. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Lola. It was really wonderful to talk with you today. Thank you. It's been an honor to be on this podcast. Thank you. Hi, Dan. Uh, gay male here with a question for the doctor, uh, Dr. Dan. Hey, um, the other night I had a date with my friend who was very excited because he had purchased a 10-inch vibrating strap-on. Uh, we were both excited. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun. I certainly enjoyed it. Um, we had a great date. But the question comes on the next day. I, I literally found myself having to run to the restroom every hour. I probably went like 15 times the next day. And uh, it wasn't anything painful, but it was just a reaction I've never had before. And I had tried to clean myself out and be prepared. But uh, anyway, I'm just curious. I think that's my body reacting. But I just want to make sure that I'm not doing anything to hurt myself. And if that's just a natural reaction, then my other question is, well, is there something I could have done to prepare myself better? Um, like I said, I did clean myself out pretty carefully. I feel like I should start writing short kind of Agatha Christie mysteries about sex where the giant vibrating dildo is the obvious suspect. But in the end, Hercule Perrault comes in and says, it was the ham sandwich and points to the hams. What are the odds here? What are the odds that this giant vibrating dildo caused you to have gastrointestinal distress for a whole day? Or... You ate something, coincidentally, the day before that upset your stomach or you picked up a little bug on your way to the giant vibrating dildo. That seems just as likely, but there's a definitely a way we could figure this out. Oh, also, I want to note quickly, I am not a doctor, but I am a bit of a sex logician. And I've talked to enough scientists and sex researchers over the years to confidently say your data set is really small and your sample is small. And when it comes to science uh, and research, you want to be able to replicate a study. So go sit on that giant vibrating dildo again. And if you have the exact same reaction again, well, then there's something about your guts 
that a giant vibrating dildo shakes all sorts of things loose or relaxes all sorts of muscles that usually aren't relaxed for you for the next 24 hours. But I suspect, I suspect, and I think Hercule Perot would agree with me that it was the ham sandwich and not the giant vibrating dildo. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Travis Starr tweets, Regarding episode 820, not all mammals sweat, Dan, LOL. For example, hippos do not have sweat glands, nor do rhinos. Whales, dolphins, and porpoises are marine mammals. Number one on the list, pigs, ironically, also do not sweat. And Dr. Adam Rosenblatt, PhD ecologist, alligator expert, root beer lover, tweets, FYI, Dan Savage, not all mammals sweat the way we do. And Dr. Rosenblatt in his tweet included a link to a book, The Joy of Sweat, The Strange Science of Perspiration by Sarah Everts. Everts writes, mildly contra Travis, that all mammals do have eccrine sweat glands, but not all mammals sweat like we do. And speaking of sweat, a quick shout out to all my listeners in the UK this week where record high temperatures are being set. I hope you're all staying cool and staying safe. Danger Manly tweets, a special Savage Lovecast episode or recurring segment where Dan Savage answers yes, no questions with only yes or no answers and then moves on to the next question. Yes, we could do that. No reason why we couldn't. Pretty sure if I had to do a whole show like that, though, stick to yes or no answers, I would have an aneurysm. And finally, Melissa tweets, just slid into the back of a yellow taxi cab in NYC. And my first thought was of fake Dan Savage, hashtag Savage Lovecast. Thank you for thinking of me, Melissa. I love New York City. And I love, as longtime listeners know, I love those classic big boxy yellow New York City taxi cabs for reasons. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And a big thank you, as always, to everyone who posted about the show to your social media this week. We really appreciate how our listeners help spread the word about the Savage Lovecast. All right, now listener feedback calls. Hi, I'm calling in response to the caller who has the boyfriend with the excessive sweatiness. Dude, stop having your wife carry around your shirt for you. That's extremely unattractive. She's not your mommy putting a change of clothes in her diaper bag. Like, dude, be a fucking adult. Take responsibility for your own shit. Women get burdened with carrying the whole family's stuff everywhere. And it's completely unfair and unreasonable. And... Shoulder bags can cause back pain and shoulder pain and chest pain. And like, dude, just grow up and carry your own fucking shirt. Hi, I'm calling in response to episode 820, the bisexual mom who found her collection of sex toys pilfered by her teenage daughter in her daughter's room. One possibility is she could just let the daughter keep the sex toys and try not to make a big deal out of it. I mean, she wants the daughter to have an explore, healthy exploration of sexuality, and she said she hadn't used those toys in a long time. And she mentioned living vicariously through her daughter, and that should have been the more concerning, was the more concerning thing. The advice there is to make sure she talks to her husband about her desire to fuck a woman with a strap-on. She has that desire, and she's 
and feels trapped. She hopes she can do it again before she dies, she said. So it seems to me that she should be less focused on her daughter's sexuality and uh, should communicate more with the hu- her husband so that she can um, d- take care of herself a little better. Uh, and then she'll be less focused on what her daughter is or isn't doing. This is for the guy in episode 820 who asked for tips to help him use they-them pronouns for his non-binary sibling. I'm a trans person who has been misgendered a lot, and I'm also working on correct use of non-binary pronouns myself, and I have three different tips for him. So tip number one is practice. Practice when you're by yourself. Before you spend time with your sibling while you're driving or going for a walk or whatever, just say out loud, I'm going to see my sibling tonight, and I'm going to ask them how they've been, and I'm going to cook them dinner, and I'm going to ask them about the books they've been reading, and so on. People learn language by speaking it and hearing it, so speaking it and hearing it is going to help you. Also, when you inevitably make a mistake in conversation, don't just go forward hoping that your sibling didn't notice. They definitely did notice. Instead, use this as an opportunity to practice the correct way, so back up and say it correctly. For example, if your sibling has changed their name from Stephanie to Stefan and is now using they, them pronouns, you can say, Stephanie said she read that book. I mean, Stefan said they read that book. Stefan, what did you think of the book? This communicates to them that you're working on it, and it also helps to reinforce the correct neural pathways that you are trying to build. My third suggestion is that human beings learn better in a positive environment than we do in a negative environment. So instead of being down on yourself for screwing up and saying, I suck at this, I'll never get it right, you want to be telling yourself, I'm working on this, I'm practicing this, I'm getting it right, congratulate yourself when you do get it right, keep at it. Good luck, and thanks for making the effort. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say? Not something I said on this week's Lovecast. Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. Submissions for Hump Film Festival's 2023 show are now open. I'm excited to see all the homemade porn that will be submitted this year. Emphasis on the homemade. My amateur porn film festival is for everybody, 18 and up. You don't have to be a professional filmmaker. We feature every type of body, every sexual orientation, every sexual interest, fantasy kink, including a sexual interest in vanilla sex. And if your submission makes it into the festival, you get a cut of ticket sales. So get creative, get horny, get something into us, and you won't just be making the world a sexier and more interesting place. You'll be making yourself some money too. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit for all the info you need. August 1st is National Girlfriend's Day. No better gift for a girlfriend who's a listener of the Lovecast than one of our Fuck First mugs. Get her one now at savage.love slash shop. And while you're on my website, be sure to read my advice column, Savage Love at savage.love slash savage love. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Lola Phoenix on Twitter at NonMonogamyHelp. And follow the tech savvy at Risk Youth on Twitter at Lovecast, T-S-A-R-Y. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. And I'll be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.